Hello, Saints. Todd here with SafeguardYourSoul.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are so blessed to have these moments together in the Word of God. And remember, Saints, there's nothing, there's nothing, no thing happening on God's planet that is even remotely as important as the work of the gospel and feeding the sheep of Jesus Christ for whom he died to save so that they can grow in grace, they can be edified, they can be equipped for the work of the ministry according to the scriptures. And let me just guarantee you this one thing, by the grace of God, this outreach will continue to unapologetically endeavor to preach the whole of the word of God, regardless of who gets offended or not in Jesus name. And please remember that your prayers and support are vital to this operation. Thank you. The message of Christ, his apostles, and the earliest followers of Jesus Christ. Did the apostles teach eternal security? Did Christ or his apostles ever tell a new believer or any believer for that matter that they were eternally secure or once saved, always saved as the cliches go? Or did they ever tell anyone or teach anyone the so-called Calvinistic doctrine? of the perseverance of the saints. Let's talk about it, saints. You see, false teachers today, just because people have become initially saved, tell them that they are judgment-proof. But is that what the apostles taught? Is that what Christ taught? Is that what the prophets taught? Is that what the earliest believers, the early church taught? This is exactly what the false leaders of Israel taught, actually. They refused to call people to true repentance and personal holiness and promise them eternal life or eternal security or that they're once saved, always saved, that they have peace with God, even though they're living in sin against a God who is represented and tells of himself, reveals of himself that he is holy, holy, holy. Remember, it was Satan in the Garden of Eden that told the man and the woman that they would not surely die if they sinned against God. But the Lord minced no words and he meant what he said when he said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, that is, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he forbid them to eat from, he said, you shall surely die, Genesis 2, 17, Satan. It was Satan, the snake in the garden, animated by Satan himself, Revelation 12, that said, you shall not surely die. And it was the snake, false prophets of Jeremiah's day that he called out when he said this, Jeremiah 23, 17, they say, still unto them, that is, these false leaders, say still unto them of God's people that despise me, that the Lord has said, quote, you shall have peace. In other words, your eternal is secure, even though they're living in sin. And they say unto everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, no evil or no judgment shall come upon you, unquote. Jeremiah 23, 17. So like the false prophets of today, this is nothing new. It started in the Garden of Eden, and we have seen it ever since throughout the history of God's people. And we see it today where these snakes in their books, in their pulpits, in their ministries promise peace. They promise the people that are God's people or actually once were God's people who are now living in sin, that they are still going to have peace with God. Jeremiah.
Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 17. So see in Lamentations 2.14, Jeremiah writes, he says, the prophets, that's the false leaders, have seen vain and foolish things for thee, and they have not discovered thine iniquity. They had not uncovered and exposed the iniquity of God's people to turn away thy captivity. See, when sins are exposed and preached, the truth about sin against God is preached, people can be delivered from their captivity or the bondage that they've been brought into by their sin that is not being uncovered by the false prophets. Remember, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 58, 1, to God's men, cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. That's the duty of the elders of the Lord. And what happens when iniquity is uncovered or discovered, it turns away the captivity of those who will repent, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. You know, that's what false prophets do. One place in the Old Testament speaks of the lightness of the false prophets and how they speak of vain causes or false burdens and causes of banishment. Notice here, we read right here in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 32, Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do tell them and cause my people to err or to go into error by their lies and by their lightness. Notice, God's people were misled by their leaders, their false leaders, quote, by their lies and by their lightness. That is, by the lies and the lightness of the false teachers. They did not fear God and they preached accordingly and everything was fun and games. That's what most pastors do on Sunday morning. They're not anointed of God and full of the Holy Ghost and preaching the raw word of God, calling men to repent, but they're lying rather to the people and doing it in a lighthearted way. All while they commandeer their prey straight down into hell. Yet I sent them not nor commanded them, therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. Friends, God is going to judge and damn into hell all who console or in any way condone people that are living in sin, instead of calling them to the absolute necessity of repentance and turning from all sin. Not only are they going to be refreshed here on earth, Acts 3.19, when we repent, we're refreshed, but also our souls and their souls are going to be saved into eternal glory. Isn't that what we read in James? In chapter 5, where, brethren, if uh, the last two verses in James, verses 19 and 20 of the fifth chapter, brethren, if any of you do err or go into error, err is the root word for error. If any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, he's talking to the church. The Bible teaches reconversion. Brethren, again, he's talking to the church. If any of you do err from the truth and one convert him or bring him back, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So all who teach this eternal security, once saved, always saved heresy are clearly false teachers. Did Jesus and his apostles teach this? No. Notice in Acts 2, 41 and 42, then they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and 
fellowship, unquote. That's Acts 2, 41 and 42. The soul who is subject to Christ should clearly desire to continue, notice, to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, unquote, and in so doing experience fellowship with Christ and his remnant, that is the true body of Christ. Now, let's look at the message of Christ on this topic. Now, the question that we have posed is whether or not Jesus and his apostles and the early church taught once saved, always saved, or eternal security. It's the same thing, pretty much. Notice Jesus taught Matthew 10, 22, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. So Jesus taught his own apostles. He's talking to his own right here, that they had to endure to the end to be saved into glory. Here, Jesus, the Almighty God, tells his own 12 that those among them who persevere to the end of their lives, remaining and continuing in obedience and faith toward him, shall be saved. There is a condition to be met to be saved into an eternal glory. You know, we see two things concerning salvation. Two of the things, I should say, we see concerning salvation is initial salvation and final salvation. We see that no clearer than when we look at Jesus's parable of the ten virgins, all of which who were espoused or engaged to the bridegroom, that's Christ, but only five made it into the bridal chamber of eternal glory, Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Now, notice here in Matthew 10, which we just read Jesus's words concerning enduring to the end in order to be saved, the utter difference between what Jesus told his disciples and what so many leaders today lead people to believe. First, recognize that Christ handpicked these 12 men and one of them didn't continue with him and went to his own place, which could only be hell. Acts chapter 1 verse 25. There is the complete absence here and throughout the New Testament scriptures of words such as you are eternally secure. We never see that. We don't ever see eternally secure in the Bible. Another one. God is not an Indian giver is what a lot of these, that's a, these are cliches. These are not biblical. In fact, they're actually against scripture and the antithesis of what is taught in Holy Scripture. Another one, another statement we hear, no matter what you do, you are sure for heaven or you are as sure for heaven as if you were already there because in the past in your life, you got saved. Again, no such assurance in the Bible. Here's another one. You are guaranteed heaven because God is not an Indian giver. It's eternal life. It's not temporary life. We hear from the mouths of those who seek to justify Satan's first lie. How about this one? Jesus is the good shepherd. How could Jesus ever lose a sheep? Another one, you can't obtain salvation by works. So you can't lose it by bad works or by living in sin. It doesn't matter what you do. You still have it. And one more, once in grace, always in grace. These are, again, a list of just sample cliches we hear. These are all cliches, not scripture. And those cliches are actually contrary or blatantly opposite or in opposition to what the Bible actually states. You know, it's interesting that those who teach the fairy tale heresy of eternal security and once saved, always saved, teach something Jesus and his holy apostles never taught. And they refuse to teach what they did teach, the necessity 
necessity of being initially saved and then to endure to the end or abide, which we, means to remain in Christ, to continue with him or to lose all whom Jesus said he's going to cast them into the fire and they are going to be burned. John chapter 15, verse 6. So uh, he's speaking to his own who were saved. He said that if they don't remain, that means he used the word abide, which means to remain or continue in him. They're going to be cast. They're going to be thrown, cast them into the fire and they are going to be burned. That could mean nothing else other than eternal damnation. So you aren't personally responsible to endure to the end, abiding in Christ to the end. Whoever is teaching that is teaching contrary to what Jesus taught in John 15, 1 through 6 and all over the Gospels. If this is the idea that anyone would possess, they have openly called the Son of God a liar, falling away and being lost again is a biblical reality and that is not going to change. Jesus invented the term fall away and so that means it's possible but Calvinists and many who believe eternal security in classic satanic style have to try to redefine the terms and ignore the things they don't like and twist the plain meaning of Holy Scripture. Concerning these last days in which we now find ourselves, Jesus gives his disciples a vastly different message than what we hear today. Notice Luke 21, beginning in verse 12, but before all these, they shall lay hands, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you and delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist, and you shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but there shall not one hair of your head perish. In your patience possess ye your souls. In other words, in your perseverance to the end, you hold your soul, if you will, or your soul is, that's a condition that must be met. In your patience possess your souls. Again, Jesus is directly tying your own perseverance to the end to your eternal destination. So in summation of this passage, the Son of God here, this is what it includes, these promises to his people and instructions, persecutions from the religious, prison for some, giving answers to rulers, divine inspiration in words, betrayal by family and friends, death for some, hated for Jesus' sake they would be, protection, verse 18, the necessity of patience or endurance to the end, verse 19 of Luke chapter 21. Then in this discourse concerning the last days, Jesus warns his very own, and that would include each of us. He says at the end of this chapter, Luke 21, by the way, Luke 21 is the what we call a sister chapter to Matthew chapter 24. And notice what Jesus says. He says, and take heed to yourselves. In other words, take personal responsibility. You take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged or weighed down with surfeiting, that means overindulgence, and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you unawares or unexpected. For as a snare or a trap shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accountable 
counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Luke 21, 34 through 36. So as one can see from these passages, Christ's message to his own was anything but a promise of ease and comfort in this life or automatic unconditional eternal security or some kind of fixed guarantee of immunity from judgment. There is no such language in the Word of God. All assurance is conditional upon the present state of the individual. Rather, Christ's words were those of promise of great trials and tribulations and even martyrdom for some and yet eternal bliss for those who endure to the end. Jesus says, and it's recorded in John 16, 33, These things have I spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus's message was certainly no promise of tiptoeing through the tulips with automatic and irrevocable eternal security if one endures not to the end of his life in trust and obedience. These are conditions for eternal glory. Based upon the whole testimony of Scripture, we must conclude that only false teachers would tell believers something the Word never promises, that they are guaranteed a place in heaven no matter what, no matter how they live after being saved. So we see that Jesus did not teach unconditional eternal security. What about the Apostle Paul? Did he teach once saved, always saved, or eternal security? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says this, but I keep under my body. In other words, keep, notice, is an ongoing responsibility. Not only present tense, but going forward, he must keep under his body and bring it into subjection. That's talking about the crucified life. Make no mistake, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a cast away. A cast away is somebody who will be cast away in the end. So Paul didn't believe once saved, always saved, much less did he preach it because he did not. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Notice the word keep. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, which denotes the necessity of staying, remaining in the will of God to remain crucified with Christ. So the Apostle Paul tells us here of the essential nature of keeping the deeds of the flesh under subjection to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. He reveals that even though he himself was saved and preached to others, quote unquote, it was still a possibility that he himself could become cast away. There's no reason for this verse to even be in the Bible if such were the case. This apostle did not count himself exempt from becoming cast away from Christ in the end. His words here reveal the distinct possibility of becoming reprobate. The apostle Paul would never have stated these words if he believed in the myth of once saved, always saved, or otherwise known as eternal security. This apostle did not consider himself unconditionally eternally secured or immune from holy divine judgment if he resorted back to sin. The very phrase, quote, I myself should be a castaway, unquote, introduces the clear and present danger that after all the Lord did to find and work in him, Paul, that the apostle Paul could lose out if he did not keep under his body and bring it into subjection to the Lordship of Christ. It is a clear indication that once saved, always saved is absolutely false. So it is also 
also clear from these words that the Apostle Paul never believed he was unconditionally eternally secure. He divulges here that there was still the potential of becoming one who is cast away from God, ultimately, if he didn't keep under his body, which speaks of abiding in Christ. And when we are the sinful man, the old man, as the Bible calls it, and its deeds will be subdued and conquered by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. Now, if he were here with us today, this world-changing historic apostle of Christ would agree and resolutely affirm the danger of becoming a castaway, quote unquote. That's the word he used after knowing and serving Christ. If such is not the case, then God has changed and we know that can't even be possible. I am the Lord, I change not, Malachi 3, 6. The Holy Spirit gave this truth to his church and God has not changed. Yet as Jude foretold today, the landscape of the modern church world is littered with ungodly men, quote unquote, who are turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness or a license for sin and would argue against the truth in the face of volumes of Holy Scripture, Jude verses three and four. They would argue with Paul that once a person is saved, they are always saved no matter what, which is patent falsehood. Such was never the message of Christ and his holy apostles. When we look at the lie in the Garden of Eden throughout Scripture, we can clearly conclude that this falsehood is the message of Satan and his emissaries, his human agents, and unthinkably being peddled today as a component of the gospel of Christ, so they claim. And here's more from Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. That speaks of our eternal body, which Christ is going to give us. Then he continues, if so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. Second Corinthians 5, verse 2 and 3. This language is far different than that heard coming from those who corrupt the message of God's grace today. The implication here is that even after being saved, one can be, quote, found naked. And being found naked, quote unquote, means that the person in question is no longer clothed with the garment of Christ's righteousness. Was this not the case with those believers in the church of Laodicea? As we read in Revelation chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 11 says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor, whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Notice he said labored. We must labor to enter into his rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. So Paul said we labor that. Why did he labor? Why did they labor? Whether present or absent, we may be accepted of the Lord or of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Second Corinthians 5, 8 through 11, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, here Paul says that, quote, to be absent from the body, unquote, is, quote, to be present with the Lord, unquote, and therefore in light of this, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, as is plainly witnessed here by every honest student of Scripture. Paul upheld labor as a prerequisite of continuing in the grace of God and being ready 
to meet him. Labor here refers to fighting the good fight of faith and laying hold on eternal life, continuing in the faith and not sinking or drawing back to sin and destruction in the face of so much divine truth. Why do some still insist upon defending and promoting the unfounded, once saved, always saved myth, which is not only not taught in scripture, but is actually refuted repeatedly and identified as the first and resounding lie of the enemy of God. It actually is taught in scripture. It's just not taught by Christ and his apostles, but it was definitely taught by Satan and his false prophets. So far, we have witnessed that Jesus never taught an abiding grace without holiness or a grace that remains with us if we don't continue with him. Paul didn't believe that he nor any believer was eternally secure. After leading people to Christ in Antioch, the apostle Paul returned to that city and notice here what his divinely inspired message to them was. Acts 14.22, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22. Today, though, in stark contrast to the original apostles of Christ, we have people who have dedicated themselves to making those around them feel, quote unquote, eternally secure or assured no matter how they are living and without the need to truly fear and serve the one who bled to deliver them from all sin. What are these people going to feel eternally in hell if they die in sin and stand before a holy God and judge of their eternal souls? Notice that the message of the apostles was not one of automatic security, assurance, and ease, but rather that, quote, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God, unquote. Those who know the Lord and will be preserved in Christ in this treacherous last hour must be willing to endure trials and suffering. Whatever the loneliness, anguish, and pain we must suffer here in this brief life, it is minuscule compared, though, to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Mark this, only a deceiver would neglect to preach the full counsel of the original gospel and name sin by name as the Bible does so clearly and repeatedly. Only a false teacher would promise eternal assurance to anyone living in rebellion against the Lord. And as we gave a sampling of earlier, we see in the Old Testament that the false prophets did just that. And they do the same today as they turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness or a license for sin. These are ungodly men, according to Jude verses three and four. So as we just witnessed firsthand in the scriptures, the Lord and his apostles admonished new converts to endure to the end and to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. This view of an unconditionally guaranteed assurity of salvation that requires no diligence of active and ongoing faith is foreign to authentic Christianity found throughout Holy Scripture and is therefore a false form of Christianity, a false gospel facilitating a mere form of godliness denying the need for the power or the reign of Christ in the individual life. Such supposes that Christ will remain in the life of all who have been born again no matter what vile sins they may now be living in. Nonsense. Unbiblical. Not true. Beloved, the 
truth is, if we are not diligently seeking the Lord this day, we are backslidden and in danger of becoming like one of the foolish virgins to whom the door of entrance into the kingdom of heaven was shut. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. So Acts 14, 22 can't be answered by the once saved, always saved crowd. It clearly and further demonstrates the fact that Jesus and his apostles never taught eternal security, which is clearly Satan's teaching, Genesis 2, 17 and 3, 4. Now notice this, when the apostle goes back around to the churches that were formed at his preaching, he stands before them and says something, something that is on record. There the apostle stands to instruct these new believers in the way, in the doctrine, the word of God he is going to deliver. Let's peek in at what he told them. What exactly did Paul give to these believers in Acts 14, 22? Did he promise that they were guaranteed heaven, eternally secure due to being now saved? Or did he, in what's called, quote, the apostles' doctrine, unquote, confirm what Jesus taught, that you must, those that are saved, endure to the end to be saved? Let's read it again. Acts 14, 22. Here's Paul. After he had led people to Christ in a certain town, he comes back to them and he says this. Notice he didn't say they're once saved, always saved. He did not say they're eternally secure. He said, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to do what? To continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. We must continue in the faith. He said, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. We are wise to ask if there were no possibility of not continuing in the faith. Why, oh, why would Paul have bothered to exhort these believers to do just that? Where, oh, where do we ever read that God's people lose their free will, that is, their ability to choose? The answer is nowhere. We should take note here that the Holy Spirit of God had all the opportunity in the world here to tell these new converts to Christ to enjoy their salvation, to be nice little kind Christians, to attend church services on Sunday, to help build a denomination, to give to the building funds, to live upstanding lives in their community. But he didn't. He could have told them that they were unconditionally eternally secure, but he didn't. No, instead, Paul gave the same message Christ gave his 12 in Matthew 10, 22, to continue and endure to the end and expect to be hated of all men for my name's sake and that much tribulation is going to, you're going to encounter much tribulation between now and the time you're in heaven. Every leader should be disclosing these things to those they oversee. Every saint should acknowledge these truths and walk them out. Paul was inspired by the Holy Ghost to write much of the New Testament canon, correct? Yes. Why didn't he guarantee heaven to everyone who had been initially born again? Why didn't the Son of God do so? In the message of the modern church, we are told that believers will be rewarded for their good works, but are not in danger of losing their souls if they don't obey God. Some misuse 1 Corinthians 3 to come to the conclusion that I just read. Such a conclusion does not align with the whole of Scripture and therefore should be discarded. Again, in the message of the modern church, we're told that believers are going to be saved no matter what, and they're going to be rewarded based on their works. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is speaking of those who actually go to heaven, and it won't be those who backslid or who did not abide in Christ. The only reward they will receive is the reward for all who reject, who do not continue and abide in Christ, and that's going to be eternal damage. 
damnation. In fact, Second Peter 2, 20 through 22 said it's going to be worse with them than if they had never known the Lord and his righteous ways. The early church apostles obeyed the master and taught new converts to continue in God's grace, just as Jesus taught them what they must do to ultimately inherit the eternal kingdom. Do we espouse and teach what Christ and his apostles taught? For more on what Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach, read 1 Corinthians 9, 27 through chapter 10, verse 12, and Romans 11, verses 19 through 23. Any thought that the Holy Spirit inspired true grace teacher taught in unconditional eternal security will be soundly silenced upon the honest reading of these passages. If once saved, always saved was an original doctrine of the New Testament church, wouldn't the Apostle Paul have included it in the books he contributed to the canon of New Testament scripture? So our question in this message is whether or not Jesus and his apostles taught eternal security. And so now we come to the Apostle Peter. What did Peter teach concerning salvation? Was it any different than what Christ and his apostles taught? Of course not. It wouldn't have been included in the canon of scripture if it was. Uh, So the message of Peter, the apostle. So Paul clearly taught against eternal security. So since we just use the Bible to justify ourselves and aren't truly interested in being honest with God, with all scripture, that is, let's see if we can get a better answer from the apostle Peter to justify living in sin, right? Wrong. Second Peter chapter two, second Peter two, 20 through 22 says, for if after notice they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. It has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow or the pig that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Second Peter 2, 20 through 22. Also, Simon Peter believed upon Christ, or Simon the, I'm sorry, it was another Simon. When Simon believed on Christ, Peter told him the following. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. But Peter said unto him, thy money perish with thee. Notice this guy had believed, and he was even baptized. You think the apostles knew he was saved? Of course he was. This is Acts chapter 8. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thy heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, the bondage of sin, unquote, Acts chapter 8. Notice here, too, as a side note, that Peter told this guy, thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Remember, Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruit. And so we must distinguish and determine people, beginning with our own selves, by the fruit of our lives. Remember, the root determines the fruit. Again, that's Acts chapter 8. Did you 
you notice that there is anything but eternal assurance in this divinely inspired communication of the Apostle Peter? Peter told Simon that he was going to perish, quote unquote, after he was saved or had believed and was baptized. Again, check it out for yourself in the eighth chapter of the book of Acts. Now, of course, we all hope that Simon repented before it was too late. Yet all we know from this text is that he asked the Apostle Peter to pray that none of the judgments pronounced would come upon him in verse 24 there in Acts chapter 8. It is frightening to think of the millions of souls who, when living in sin like Simon was after being saved, do not have the voice of true godly authority like Peter, apostolic authority, which we have on record in the scriptures, who follow Christ authentically, warning them to repent or they will perish, just like Peter did to a man that had gotten saved and even water baptized. This is undeniable. Simon got saved and turned to sin again, and Peter called him to repent or he was going to, quote, perish. Simon was blessed because he had a man like Peter to rebuke the error of his way. Today, it is regrettably all too rare to find some those who are authentic New Testament Christians who endeavor to live and declare the apostolic doctrine once delivered to the saints, which Jude verse 3 instructs us to do, and especially against those who are perverting the grace of God. Beloved, are you willing to answer the call of God to learn and to live real New Testament Christianity as we witness on the pages of New Testament scripture? This would include helping Christian people living in sin by calling them to repent, or they will perish. We must warn them because we love them, most of all because we love God and we obey God. Living like Jesus and his apostles means giving no hope or assurance or eternal security promises to anyone living outside of obedience to Christ and his word, his will, but rather calling those people who are living in rebellion currently in sin, or calling them to repent, or they warning them that they will perish just like Peter warned this man named Simon. This means that they would ultimately go to hell if they don't repent. And this is all regardless to any past relationship experience they had with the Lord, as is clear throughout Scripture, including with this example of Simon and also Ezekiel 33, 12 and 13, etc. Those under shepherds who truly fear the Lord endeavor to speak the truth in love, to safeguard the precious souls of those they oversee with divine truth. The Apostle Peter had all the opportunity in the world to overlook the new convert's sin. Peter had full and open occasion here to assure Simon that he was quote-unquote eternally secure no matter what he did or how he chose to live after being saved. But Peter did not do any such thing. Why not? Because such would have been treason and utterly in opposition to the truth of God. Even a cursory look at the New Testament scriptures revealed that the Lord Jesus and his apostles had a completely different approach and instructions than do many ministers and ministries today. Unlike original and authentic Christianity found on the pages of New Testament scripture, most ministries today give no admonition or warning to new converts of the Christian faith. They do not warn them to cut off the hand, to pluck out the eye of all sin, to rid their lives of all sin, lest their whole body be cast into hell, into the fires that never shall be quenched and where their worm or their consciousness shall never cease. Mark 9, 43 through 49. One more writer of the New Testament as we come in for a landing here, the message of Jude, who is the half 
brother of Jesus. He writes this, as we've already referred to. We're going to read Jude. It's only one chapter, verses 4 through 7, and then verses 12 and 13. He writes that there are certain men crept in unawares or undetected who were before of old time ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, which means a license for sin, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved his people, having saved his people out of the land of Egypt, that represents the world, this represents salvation from sin and out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. So having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward, notice, afterward, destroyed them that believe not. Now, some would contend that you can't stop believing. Well, there's a song by that title, but you can certainly stop believing. Jesus said you can believe for a little while or season and time of temptation, fall away. God doesn't force any man and never does he remove our free moral agency, our freedom to choose. So afterward, after saving his people out of Egypt, he destroyed them that believed not and the angels which kept not their estate. Here's another example. First, he gives the example of him destroying his own people who backslid. And now he's going to speak of angels and the angels which kept not their first estate. Remember, one third of the angels departed with Lucifer or Satan, and they're forever vanquished from the presence of the Lord. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. If that wasn't possible, why could they do it? Well, because it's possible. These angels left their first habitation, that is, with God. And because of this, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even Sodom and Gomorrah. Now he goes to another example. Even Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. These are spots in your feast of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, right in your midst, just wiping their mouth like they did no wrong. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead. Notice twice dead. They were born separated from God. They got right with God and then they were dead again, just like the prodigal son, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. These are the apostates, those who depart from the faith, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, after being saved. That's the only way you could depart from the faith is you'd have to be in that saving faith first. So by direct inspiration of the Holy Ghost, Jude says that ungodly men who have crept in unawares or secretly are turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And by doing such, they are denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he begins to enumerate how the Almighty has destroyed those who were once in his kingdom and then departed. He brings New Testament believers into remembrance of the fact that, quote, the Lord, having saved his people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. And then he reminds us of how Lucifer and one third of the angels who once <laughs> occupied heaven are now fallen into the eternally irrevocable state of condemnation. He says, and the angels which kept not their first estate, obviously, like mankind, they kept their free will. 
God allowed them free will. In fact, it's really not love or love relationship unless, unless there's the free will to love or to depart from. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day, unquote. Not once do we see the Son of God, any of his apostles, or any other believer or writer of the New Testament telling the newly saved or anyone that's saved that they are once saved, always saved, or intimating that they are unconditionally, eternally secure. Such a message is completely foreign to genuine and original New Testament Christianity. There is no hint of teaching insinuating the diabolical lie that the believer has no need to obey God in their life. Instead, that is in their personal daily life. Instead, there is abundance of warning that if one goes back into sin, judgment awaits that transgressor. The modern teaching of eternal security is entirely alien to the teachings of Christ and his apostles and is therefore another gospel according to 2 Corinthians 11 and also Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 through 9. So as we come in for a close and have a word of prayer together, remember Jesus taught again that those who are in him and yet discontinue being in him or do not abide or remain in him, which they have the freedom to do, they're going to be cast forth, quote, cast forth as a branch and withered. They're going to dry up because they're going to no longer be attached to the vine, which Jesus said he was, and therefore they will no longer receive his virtue, his divine nourishment, and they will wither. And then men are going to gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. They're going to be burned, and that means they're going to go to hell where all rebels go, John 15, 6. So to teach that after a believer is saved, he is going to automatically go to heaven, no matter what he does or does not do, is clearly not a New Testament teaching at all. Only those who get saved and continue to make the decision to abide, that means to remain in faith and obedience to the Lord, will be eternally with him. All others will be cast into the fire. To each of the seven churches that Jesus addressed in Revelation 2 and 3, he gave them a condition of being with him and ruling the nations eternally with him that they had to overcome. Here's one example, Revelation 2, 25 and 26, at the end of each of the letters to the seven churches, he promised that only those who overcome are going to be with him. Revelation 2, 25 and 26 says, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Being with the Lord and ruling and reigning with him eternally has conditioned to it. You must overcome. If conditional eternal security was an original doctrine of Christ and the New Testament apostles, we would find it in the canon of New Testament scripture. Saint of the Lord, be exhorted to keep your soul diligently by removing yourself from any leader who espouses such a dangerous falsehood. Such a lie is a cancer to the soul, eating away at fervency and crippling the necessity of diligent faith in and obedience to Christ. Quite frankly, believing once saved, always saved will inevitably rob the fear of God from your heart. Second Peter 1 says, we're going to read a portion of scripture from Second Peter 1 and Second Peter 3, the same book, chapter 1 and 3, and then we're going to pray. Wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord. 
Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Let's pray, saints. Lord Jesus, please bless me to continue in the apostles' doctrine once delivered to your saints in your word. Please quicken my heart in thy holy fear to a deeper relationship with you in fervency of spirit, born out of the fear of the Lord. Make my conscience extremely sensitive to your conviction and grant repentance to my heart for every depraved motive, thought, or action. Father, thank you so much for the sacrifice and resurrection of your only begotten Son. In Jesus' name. Remember, this is a chapter, by the way, out of the book, Lie of the Ages. It's a 730-page blockbuster, the scriptures therein, which are sure to change your life and greatly expand your knowledge of the Word of God. Again, it's titled Lie of the Ages. It's found on safeguardyoursoul.com, the store page, and also on Amazon. God bless you. Well, brothers and sisters, it's been a blessing to spend these moments with you in the Word of God. And remember, there's hundreds of more Christ-centered, scripture-rich, edifying podcasts on safeguardyoursoul.com forward slash audios. There's also a store page with several many books on there for your edification in Christ. They're all scripture-rich and Christ-centered. Also, tens of thousands of saints and sinners are being reached every month, and your prayers are coveted for the fruitfulness and supply of this outreach. God be praised, by the way, for those who are supporting, and feel free to visit our donate page on the site, and you can use your debit card, PayPal, or Patreon, and you can become a monthly sustaining member if you choose to do so, and a gift of any amount is so appreciated. Part of this outreach is to equip and supply other ministering disciples across our great country and all over the world. And may God be praised that there's fruitfulness happening among his people and through his beloved saints as we know that the return of our Lord Jesus Christ draws nigh. And we say together in the words of Revelation 22, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.